Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I, I have to admit I'm uh, somewhat hesitant and, and nervous to address the topic we're going to talk about today. It's uh, not a, a correct hesitancy. It's not a right hesitancy. Uh, this is something that we need to be prepared to speak boldly about. This is something that we need to be clear on in our own minds and in our heads, and this is something that we all need to be willing to apply in our lives and call the world and the church around us to repentance to. Uh, last, well, several months ago, we discussed the topic of abortion. We talked about what the Bible teaches about it. And this uh, week and these next two weeks, actually, there is occasion to revisit this topic again. Proverbs 24, uh, verses 10 through 12, says this, If you are slack in the day of trouble, your strength is in trouble. Deliver those who are being taken away to death, and those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Oh, hold them back. The title of this message is Lies That We Don't Think We Believe About Abortion. Lies that we don't think we believe about abortion. An alternate title might be, Alex felt like he had too many friends, so he felt like he would lose some. Uh, I don't think it will be the case here in this church. However, this is a, a discussion that has brought up a great deal of, of heat and animosity. Uh, there is need to address this topic. We, as a country, and as the church have been discipled by the world on this topic. We've been trained on how to think about this topic by the world rather than the Word of God. As a result, we've been trained to believe lies about abortion, lies that we don't think we believe, but our actions show otherwise. And when I say our, I'm not sp uh, speaking about just us here in this room. I, maybe I can even say, I don't think, any, maybe none of us have been fooled by these things. But our, I, I'm speaking of the church as a whole, those who would claim to want to protect the lives of the unborn as a whole. Uh, we have uh, believed lies that we do not think we believe. Uh, like so much of the church in Germany, uh, of Germany during the days of the rise of Hitler, during the Holocaust, American Christians have become very complacent when it comes to the murder of the unborn children. It's easy to simply ignore it and pretend that it isn't happening since it is not right in our face, but that does not excuse uh, inaction and complacency on our part. One of the things that churches in Germany would often do when the, when the trains hauling Jews to the concentration camp would pass by their buildings, it would, bring, it would cause those churches to sing louder, to drown out the cries of those on their way to their doom. And I'm afraid that many in the church today, that is the attitude that we have. Sing louder, pretend it isn't there. Abortion in our nation and in our state has become the sacrament of the religion of the world. It is a religious ritual. It is a religious act. It is the symptom of false worship. It seeks to obtain blessings 
that can only come through faith in Christ through the slaughter of their child. It promises the mother or the parents that they will be able to enjoy life, that they will be able to prosper, that they will be able to do what it is they want to do if they would but offer their child up on the altar of the abortionist mill. In excusing this evil of the world, we not only allow this evil to go on, but we rob those who have committed this sin of the hope of the gospel. So there is occasion for this message. I didn't just decide that, oh, this would be a good week to speak on this. Since abolishing Roe versus Wade, uh, abortion has not gone away. In fact, the rate of abortion has been rising. And that's true for our state of Iowa as well. Iowa, this last week, had a historic opportunity to advance a bill that would provide equal protection under the law for all people, including unborn children. A wonderful bill that would effectively have outlawed this horrific practice in our state. However, this bill was killed on the basis of the lies that we're going to discuss today. Lies that we believe without knowing it. Now, how can we believe a lie without knowing it? How can we believe a lie when we know it's a lie, right? Uh, That that doesn't make sense. That seems almost uh, paradoxical, right? Um, Now, let me give you an illustration. What if I were to, you know, we can believe things without necessarily acting out on them, or we can say we believe things without necessarily really believing them. What if I were to say to you that I am 100% convinced I've got insider knowledge. All the evidence points to the reality that Jesus is going to return at 6 o'clock tonight. What if I told you that, right? And I preached a whole message on it, explaining my reasoning why. It's so clear. I I, I believe it. No way. What if I did that, and then after church I said, so tomorrow do you want to come over for supper? (laughs) Now, I may be convinced in my own mind Uh, of what I had just said, but my actions demonstrate that that is not the case. And that's how it can so often be with these lies that we have believed about abortion. We may affirm that it is a lie. We may have biblical knowledge of the truth. However, what we believe is not as clearly expressed in what we say as it is in what we do. And this is what the point that James makes. James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 says, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Do you really intend for them to go in peace, to be warmed and be filled while your actions demonstrate otherwise? So instead of complacently going along with these lies, we as the church of Christ have been called to expose these lies, to bring them to light. And it begins first here in the church, right? Uh, we are told, we're told by Paul in Ephesians, don't participate in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead even expose them. The Apostle Peter tells us that judgment begins in the house of God. So if we're to have a clear message to the world, if the world is to know the truth about these things, we need to be clear on these things first. 
So uh, before we get into the lies specifically about the act of abortion and uh, these things that have excused and permitted the continued taking of human life, we need to look at some initial lies that have to be debunked. So one of the lies that we believe is that uh, the church shouldn't talk about politics. And since abortion is a political issue, we shouldn't talk about it, right? That's so often what we've heard. After all, we're not a state house. Uh, we're not here to debate policy or anything like that. We're here to talk about the word of God. Well, uh, as we know from last time we looked at this, this is not a political issue. It is, but it isn't. Well, and the reality is, every issue, if you really think about it, is a political issue in some way. And every political issue is ultimately a moral issue. And Scripture gives guidance on how we are to address all of these things. God is not silent in the matter of politics, and neither should we be silent where God is not silent. Think of the statement, Jesus is Lord. That is actually a very politically charged statement. And if you don't think it is now, it certainly was then. One of the major reasons for persecution was political rebellion because they were saying someone other than Caesar is Lord. They were saying Jesus is Lord. And they were put to death because of it. Another lie that we believe is that it's not the government's job to interfere with the choices that women make about their own body. Therefore, the government has no place in interfering in the matter of abortion. We may disagree with it, we may not like it, we may recognize that it's evil, but there's no role for anyone to stop it, let alone the government, right? And generally, we don't like government interference. I know I don't. Uh, ask me to come up with number one uh, things that I enjoy complaining about the most, and usually it's going to be something the government is doing that it shouldn't be doing, right? We don't like that kind of government interference. So are we hypocritical in saying that the government should interfere in matters that have to do with what a woman does with her own body? Another charge that goes along with this is you can't legislate morality. Ever heard that? Well, newsflash, all legislation is legislating morality. Every law that is passed is making some kind of moral statement. Laws that say you cannot murder, well, that's saying murder is immoral. Even laws that permit, you know, things that we might call uh, vices, right? We've heard of sin taxes. Even those are saying something moral. They're saying, yeah, this act is immoral, but it is moral to pro make a profit off of it, right? Uh, why are casinos open? Not because it's the right thing to do, but because we can make money off of them. So uh, every bit of legislation is in some way legislating morality. And the scriptures teach that governing authorities are actually charged with upholding justice. The book of Romans says, Romans chapter 13, says that every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those which exist have been appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists that authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise for the same. For it is a minister of God for your good. God calls civil governing authorities his minister 
for good. Minister, deacon, the same word used to describe that church office, right? They are God's servants. They are God's ministers. And we read of the specific duties of these servants and ministers to commend that which is evil and to punish that which is good. And there's a warning that comes with it. If you do evil, be afraid. Yes, I'm sorry. Got him reversed. I'm, what did I say? <laughs> to, commend ev- com- to, men- to commend good and to punish which is evil. <laughs> I got him reversed because we so often see the reversal of that, don't we? <laughs> Thank you, Ned. <laughs> That's what we see. But this is what God tells them to do, right? To be punishers of evil and commenders of those which are good. And he gives us the warning. If you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword in vain, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. God has a role for government, and he has instructions for government. And that includes uh, commending that which is good and punishing that which is evil. Are you happy that no one can legally walk in here and just begin shooting people and walk away with it? Are you happy that there will be a government response and justice will be carried out? I sure am. That is a good thing. That's one of the reasons that God has established government to begin with. So the whole idea that government can't legislate uh, morality or the government can't interfere when it comes to the taking of life is an idea completely foreign to Scripture Another lie that we believe is that the church should not be involved in anything that would be seen as political, as it's the church's job to preach the gospel and not to reform society. Now, well, we agree it is the church's job to preach the gospel, but a necessary part of preaching the gospel is to call people to repentance, is it not? Uh, What does Mark's gospel say about Jesus when he began to preach the gospel of the kingdom? He says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. The call to repentance comes with the call to faith. And this call to repentance is not limited to uh, just simply those who would walk into. This is a command for everyone. Uh, In Luke's gospel, we see that John himself is calling even on civil rulers, civil magistrates to repent. What happened when the tax collectors came and said, what should we do? Did John say, oh, you work for the government, don't worry about it? No, he said, you're not allowed to take more than what has been ordered. Soldiers, when they came and asked him, what are we supposed to do? John didn't say, oh, don't worry about it, you work for the government. No, he said, don't take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. So there is a play. uh, So you'll notice that these government officials working for the government, tax collectors, soldiers were charged with obeying God's commands as they carried out their duties as civil magistrates. And this uh, does not preclude calling out unrighteous rulers who rule and act in an unrighteous way. Why is it that John the Baptist eventually found himself imprisoned and beheaded? Well, we read in Mark's gospel, Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound him in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. John was not afraid of him. Jesus was not afraid of calling Herod a fox. Uh, So to believe this idea that the church has no place in calling legislators or whatever else to repentance and to walk according to God's rule, well, that's a lie that we've been forced to believe in order to keep us silent. So 
now that we've kind of covered some of these introductory lies, there are three lies that we're going to be covering this week and next week. We'll get to the first two of them uh, this week, and we'll uh, conclude with the final one this week. The first lie that we believe is that which is conceived within the womb of the mother is not a baby. The, l- the first lie that we believe, that we don't think we believe, is that the, that which is conceived in the mother's womb is not a baby. So first we need to ask, why is this a lie? Well, the scriptures plainly teach that at the point of conception, a new human life has been created. It teaches it plainly throughout. In Genesis, we read, Adam, the man, knew his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. Now, Cain is the object of both of those verbs, conceived and gave birth. She did not conceive one thing and give birth to another thing. That which she gave birth to is that which she conceived. And this is what we see throughout Scripture. In so many books of the Bible, the pattern is so-and-so conceived and bore a son, a daughter, children, whatever else that it may be. That which is conceived is that which is born. Psalm 51, verse 5, David says, uh, I was brought forth in iniquity and in my sin, er, and in sin my mother conceived me. So David is talking about how he was conceived, right? He's talking about his sinful nature, yes, but uh, it's plain from this text that David doesn't say, well, that which eventually became me was conceived in iniquity. No, I was conceived in iniquity. Psalm 139, a a favorite of many, says, You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and intricately woven in the depths of the earth. When did Jesus himself become incarnate? Well, when he was conceived, right? Uh, The angel told Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus. So a son is conceived. The word became flesh. In the very point in time that word became flesh, he was a single cell living in his mother's womb. Uh, Similarly, Elizabeth conceives a son in her age. And the son is not only a son after the son is born. The son is a son even at that point of conception. And this biblical evidence is confirmed by our own observations of what happens at the point of conception or more specifically fertilization, right? Uh, This is something, I saw this at the hospital when we were visiting for Maria and getting checkups for her. And I thought this was really interesting. Uh, It says this, from the moment of conception... Of the 200 million sperm that try to penetrate the mother's egg cell, only one succeeds. At that very moment, a new and unique individual is born. All of the inherited features of this person are already set. Whether it's a boy or a girl, the color of the eyes, the color of the hair, the dimples of the cheeks, and the cleft of the chin, he or she is smaller than a grain of sugar but the instructions are present for all that this person will ever become. An amazing reality, an amazing thing that God does. Uh, That individual at that point in time has a unique set of DNA, is a unique life. Uh, 
created in the image of God, even at such a small age. So we see the truth of this. I think we can all recognize this and we say, yeah, we, we know it, right? So how do we believe this lie? How do we believe this lie? In what way do we believe this lie? Maybe I should say. Well, while it is generally accepted that a human being is a human being in the womb, there is a great amount of disagreement on when they become a human being. So many will say, yes, at some point they're a human. Yes, at some point we recognize they're a baby. But the disagreement is on when that point is. There are laws in our books today that have been created in order to protect a child in the womb. But most of these laws, and in fact, all of these laws, usually do not come into effect until it reaches some arbitrary stage in life, right? We've heard of things like a, a heartbeat bill. Yes, uh, at the moment you can hear a heartbeat, that child must not be killed. So until there is a heartbeat, that child is free to be murdered, right? Or something like a 20-week ban or uh, something along those lines, right? And the illogical reasoning is, well, we know at this point the child becomes a human, or at least we're going to treat that child as a human. But up until that point, well, who's to say? One of the words that has been abused and redefined is the word conception. Now, where the word conception once referred to the fertilization of an egg, as described above, right? We know at the moment that egg is fertilized. It's a new and unique human being. This word has been redefined. Uh, this word has been redefined to now describe the point in which that human being is implanted into his mother's womb. Uh, and we see this not just uh, on those who would argue for uh, the ability to kill these unborn. We see this argument even from those who would claim to want to protect the unborn. The Iowa Standard, a news publication, reports uh, that Republican Representative Brian Lose says life does not begin at conception, but when blood begins to flow, so day 11 or 12. So this is completely arbitrary. What was this child, was this child just not alive before then? How can that which is not alive all of a sudden become alive? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense scientifically. It doesn't make any sense biblically, does it? It's a completely arbitrary uh, line. Uh, as at the point of fertilization, we know that it is a distinct life. We don't have the right to declare when a life begins. We don't get to declare when a life begins. It's a biblical and observable fact. I can't, point, I can't look to someone who is alive and say, no, nah, they're not actually alive until I say so. That's not our place. And, this, is, and uh, this redefinition, one of the purposes of this is to claim that certain uh, hormonal uh, birth controls, such as IUDs, Plan B uh, pills, uh, so they can be advertised as not being abortifacient, right? So we can recognize that these drugs do uh, things that do prevent fertilization, right? Therefore, no child is harmed. Uh, we can recognize there are true contraceptive attributes to these drugs, and contraception simply means preventing conception, right? So therefore, no child is armed. Uh, however, one of the functions of these drugs is to create an uninhabitable environment for that newly fertilized egg, and thus preventing it from becoming attached to its mother's womb, therefore killing it, causing an abortion. 
and this deceptive language of changing the definition of what it means to be conceived has allowed these drugs to claim that they prevent conception when the reality is there is a chance that they could cause a newly conceived child to die. Uh, one document called the Biblical Council from the Protestant Pastors of the Church of Iowa states this, the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology estimated that a woman using an IUD will have a 0.2 to 1 post-fertilization losses per year. And it concludes with the statement, this is a preventable loss of innocent life. Now, we can recognize that these deaths that occur, they, they, it can't be proven when uh, one of the, these things occurs. And we can recognize that these are not the result of malice or forethought. In fact, uh, deaths like this happen even when there aren't preventative measures. Uh, so we can all recognize that, right? Women don't necessarily bear the guilt of children who have died due to inhospitable conditions in the womb, especially if they were unaware of that particular function of those drugs. However, there is biblical precedent for taking action to prevent unnecessary death. Think of the law in Deuteronomy regarding the parapet on the roof. It states, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet on your roof so that you will not bring uh, blood guilt on your house if anyone falls from it. What's the purpose of this law? Well, to prevent the unnecessary loss of human life, the preventable loss of life, a life that would have been prevented from being lost had there been a parapet on the roof, right? That's why, well, that's why we do any number of things. Why is it that we put fences around pools so no children wanders into it and drowns, right? So uh, we recognize uh, the inconsistency when uh, an inhospitable environment is created for a child, an environment whose purpose is to cause that child to die, uh, while at the same time recognizing that that child is a child from conception. So let's expose this lie. How can we expose this lie? So if we know that a child is a child from the point of conception, then we should be prepared to take measures that would protect and preserve its life from that point, from that point. Not merely measures that will protect it once it reaches a certain age or a certain point in development, but from the very beginning of its life. We don't get to pick and choose when a baby is a baby. We don't get to pick and choose when a baby is a baby. And the size of a human does not determine its value. The size of a human does not determine its value, and the environment of a human does not determine its value. We see this not only applies to the topic of abortion, but it can also apply to things such as in vitro fertilization. Now, I, uh, don't get me wrong, there can be uh, notable motiva or noble motivations for things such as in vitro fertilization to give uh, parents who otherwise would not be able to conceive a child in a natural way the ability to do so. But what is, un uh, so what is unknown about this is oftentimes in this practice, there are multiple children conceived, multiple eggs fertilized uh, in order to give the, children, uh, give the parents the best chance at having a child. But uh, the result often is that many of these fertilized eggs are eventually destroyed. Uh, sometimes multiple eggs will be implanted in the mother and then uh, selectively aborted, leaving the most healthy and most likely one there. 
Other times, these children are frozen, right? Uh, frozen for years on end. And most often, the case, they are just simply incinerated. Yes, they're small. Yes, we can't even really see them with the naked eye. But that doesn't take away the reality of what they are. So we need to be consistent in every area of this and to call other Christians and rulers and anyone with ears to hear to consistency on this matter. So that the first lie that we don't think we believe. What is conceived in the mother's womb is not a baby. Here's the second lie that we don't think we believe, but that we in many ways show we do believe. And the lie is this, that the rights extended to those who are born do not extend to the baby in the womb. So the lie is that the rights extended to us do not extend to the baby in the womb. Now, we know this is a lie. Scripture gives children the exact same protection, legal protection in the womb as he gives those who are outside of the womb. The scripture is clear on this. Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 through 25, uh, gives us a, a case law relevant to this. And it says, If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband will set for him. And he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is further injury, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, wound for wound. Now, when we first read this passage, we uh, may be per uh, perplexed and say, okay, who is that applying to? Because it doesn't necessarily say. Does it apply to the mother or to the child? Well, the answer is yes, right? Uh, and it's not just my opinion. Notable uh, experts in this field have, have, have pointed this out. Uh, one uh, commentator from the Reformation era says this, that this passage at first sight is ambiguous. For the word death only applies to the for if the word death only applies to the pregnant woman, it would not have been a capital crime to put an end to the fetus, which would have been a great absurdity. For the fetus, though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being, and it is almost a monstrous crime to rob it of the life which it has not yet begun to enjoy. If it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in a field, because a man's house is his place of most secure refuge, it ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb before it has come to light. On these grounds, I am led to conclude, without hesitation, that, that the words, if death should follow, must be applied to the fetus as well as the mother. Besides, it would, by no means, it would be by no means reasonable that a father should sell for a set sum the life of his son or daughter. Wherefore, this, in my opinion, is the meaning of the law, that it should be a crime punishable with death not only when the mother died from the effects of the abortion, but if the infant should be killed, whether it should die from the wound abortively or soon after its birth. So clearly, God is concerned with the life of the unborn, so concerned that he says the same light, the same law that protects those who are born is to protect those who are unborn 
as well. And this is the first place in which we find the lex talionis, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, called the law of retribution. And we hear that, and uh, us, if we're sensitive to the New Testament, say, wait, hold on a second, I thought that was gotten rid of. Well, no, Jesus says that you are not to use this as a means of personal vengeance. However, all justice, uh, uh, what this law teaches ultimately, is that the guilty party is to suffer the same harm as the injured party. It's not prescribing personal revenge. It's not condoning it by any means. But rather, it is saying this is the judicial penalty that is due. Now, and again, it doesn't necessarily follow the exact injury be carried out, but a payment corresponding to the damages. And this is the foundation of not just biblical justice, but all justice. Now, think about it. Would we like uh, a justice system that said, if someone comes and steals your car, he's going to have to pay you a $5 fine. Well, we would say, well, no, hold on a second. That's not right. Now, on the flip side, would we say, would we like a justice system that says, if you are caught speeding, then the just penalty for that is for you to be taken out and beaten within an inch of your life. We would say, no, that's not just at all, right? Because the punishment is not corresponding to the crime. And that's what this is teaching. And God takes that and applies it not just to those who are born, but also to those who are unborn. God is not partial. In fact, God hates partiality, the unequal administration of justice. And God takes particular care on calling for justice for the most needy. Psalm 82, verses 2 through 4 Uh, God, calling on the judges of the earth, says this, How long will you judge unrighteously and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the poor and to the orphans. Orphan can often uh, also be translated to the fatherless. Now, who can be described better as fatherless than those unborn children with no one to advocate for? So give justice to the poor and to the fatherless. Justify the afflicted and the destitute. Protect the poor and the needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. God hates partiality. God loves equal justice being applied to everyone. God is just with us. He is impartial with us, and therefore he demands the same for us. So we recognize that this is clear, right? Uh, those who are under, uh, those who are protected by the law, right? Those who are alive are to be given the same protection under, under the law as anyone else, right? No one deserves more or less protection than anyone else. We see that from scripture. It seems pretty clear. Here's how we believe this lie. Well, The unborn, as we pointed out, are often seen as a special class of humans. While we can grant that they are human, we do not grant them the same rights as every other human being. You see, we who have already been born have a born privilege, right? And that born privilege only comes once you've passed through the birth canal. Uh, These rights that we enjoy are not extended to those who have yet to be born And this is reflected in many of the laws that are even put forward to protect unborn children. Now, these laws recognize their humanity, right? Uh, uh, And these laws recognize their humanity, and yet, at the end of them, they will always give the conditions under which this child can be legally murdered. It's amazing how so many laws will begin with something like, children created in the womb are created in the image of God, but then conclude with, Therefore, 
They shall not be killed after they reach 20 weeks in the womb. Or therefore, they shall not be killed after, or, uh, before a heartbeat is detected. Or therefore, they shall not be killed until after the mother has gone through a 24-hour waiting period. Do we see the injustice that is there? What if we were to apply these uh, laws to any other class of people in society? In fact, history shows us what happens when we do that. Throughout history, humans have recognized other humans as human beings, but have stripped their rights away from them. African slaves were recognized as human beings. They weren't a different species than us. That was obvious to anyone uh, who wasn't just the most radical Darwinist, but uh, they were recognized as human beings. However, they were still counted as property, and they still did not get to enjoy the same rights and freedoms that non-slaves got to enjoy. Jews in Nazi Germany were recognized as, yeah, technically they're human beings, right? However, it was still legal to kill them because their class of humanity was not as privileged as the rest. And now the unborn are recognized as human, even as created in the image of God, and yet it's still there are still conditions under which it is legal to put them to death. When there is, uh, uh, and often the case, you know, we will see that uh, you know, there are limited protections that these children might receive, right? Uh, but even when there is punishment for the deaths of these children, it usually isn't proportionate with the crime. In many cases, abortion, even where it is counted as illegal, uh, the punishment, uh, in many cases, a class C felony is given to the abortionist. Now, class C, it's the same degree of felony as those who commit tax fraud, right? Hardly equal with the taking of an innocent human life. So we need to expose this lie as well. The lie that we believe that rights extended to us are not to be extended to the baby. So there are laws on this books right now that do grant that protection to the baby in certain circumstances. In many states, if a drunk driver happens to kill a woman who is pregnant, he will be charged not with one, but two counts of homicide. Right? And that's just. We look at that and we say, amen. However, in that very same state, if that man happened to not hit that woman, and that woman then went on and had that very same baby murdered, there would be nothing. So we see that there's protection in some circumstances, but not in others. And it's, it's very hypocritical to on one, on one side of your mouth say, yes created in the image of God. Yes, even in these circumstances, must be protected at all costs. Justice must be carried out. But there are other circumstances in which, well, we can't really do that. That would be harsh. Uh, that wouldn't be right. That just doesn't feel right. It's blatant hypocrisy. Proverbs 11, verse 1, says a deceptive balance is an abomination before the Lord but a just weight is his delight. So as we wrap up this part one, because uh, we're going to address the big one next week, the, and what I believe really is the reason that abortion will not end in this country or this state unless the church steps up 
and intervenes. Uh, we'll, we'll cover that next week. But in conclusion to this part one, why, why does this really matter? Why do we need to know this? Right? It's not like I like being up here and talking about this. It's not like this is my favorite topic to reflect on and think about. Well, we need to know this because God does not change. His standards do not change. And we are living in the world that God created. God is a just judge who judges the land in which innocent blood is shed. Leviticus chapter 18, verses 26 through 28. After God had just given Israel a number of prohibitions, including the prohibition against killing your children, offering them up as sacrifices to Molech, says this, But as for you, you shall keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not do any of these abominations. Neither the native nor the sojourner who sojourns among you. So this isn't just saying, hey, here's my special law for you, my people Israel. It doesn't apply to anyone else. He says, no, this applies to everyone, no matter what. Even the sojourner who sojourns among you for the the men of the land who have been before. And then he goes on and he says this, for the men of the land who have been before you have done all of these abominations and the land has become defiled. Who's he talking about? The land that is about to be destroyed by the wrath of God through the army of Israel. He's talking about the land of Canaan. He says, they have committed these abominations and the, uh, and the land has become defiled. And now he's telling Israel, therefore you do not commit these abominations so that the land will not vomit you out should you defile it as it has vomited out the nation which has been before you. God destroys nations. God destroys peoples for this wickedness. God commands rulers of this world to rule justly and in submission to what he has said. In Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12, he gives a solemn warning to the rulers of the world who are conspiring against him. And he says this, So now, O kings, show insight Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So God commands rulers of the world to rule justly. And then finally, God hates the hypocrisy of those who would claim to be servants of him while, on the other hand, are committing horrific acts such as this. In Isaiah chapter 1, God is speaking to the people of Israel through Isaiah the prophet. He says this, Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of God, you peoples of Gomorrah. Who is he talking to? He's talking to his people. He's talking to Israel. And yet he says, you are rulers of Sodom. You are people of Gomorrah. Why? Because they're doing the very things that those wicked cities were doing. God says this, I've had enough of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle and the blood of the bulls of lambs or goats. I take no pleasure. So the people of Israel, remember, they've got the sacrificial system in place. In their minds, they're saying, well, hold on a second. We're doing the right thing. Don't we offer the weekly sacrifices? Don't we do everything that we need to do? Don't we keep the feast? Don't we keep the holidays? That's what they may be saying. And God says, I've had enough of this. 
there is no pleasure in this. He says, when you come to appear before me, who requires, you, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convection, uh, convocation, I cannot endure wickedness and the solemn assembly. My soul hates your new moon and your festivals and your appointed times. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of them. Why is this? Why is God weary of the religious practice that he himself ordained among the people of Israel? Why does God say these things are detestable, these things are an abomination? He says, so when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Indeed, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. How can a nation whose hands are drenched in the blood of God hope to receive the blessings of God? How can a nation pretend to be obedient to God, pretend to serve the Lord when its hands are drenched and its lands are drenched with the blood of the innocent? That's what God says. Therefore, he calls them to repent. Wash yourselves, purify yourselves, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, execute justice for the fatherless. We've heard that word before. Plead for the widow. We, as the church, need to be the salt and light in this area. If this barbaric, evil practice of human sacrifice is ever going to end, it will only be through the work of the church in walking in faith and obedience to God. The scriptures are clear that if we have the ability to do something and we don't do it, well, we stand guilty before him. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 27 through 28 says this, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your hand to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I will give it when it is there with you. Delayed obedience is not acceptable. God is calling on us now to end this horrific practice. And we as the church need to be the salt and the light of the world that brings this issue to light, that exposes it, that calls out on the world to repent of this wickedness, that calls out on the rulers of this world to act according to the word of God, that calls out on the church to begin to live consistently with what we know the scriptures say, to stop believing the lies that we claim to not believe. So as I said, this, uh, we will continue this next week. And, um, you know, if this week wasn't fun, I'm sure next week will also not be fun. But this is a necessary uh, topic that needs to be brought up. This is something we need to be aware of. This is the great holocaust of our day. Those who are in charge, those who are responsible, they have failed. The only way that this will uh, end is with the gospel of peace brought by the church, those who have been charged with bringing that gospel to the world. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are, it's hard to say, thankful 
when we're faced with this horrific reality that's before us. And it's hard to know what to think. In many ways, we feel like we're Gideon, surrounded by enemy armies, just hiding and trying to make by. But Lord, we know that you are the God of history. We know that you are not a God who relies on numbers. You are not a God who relies on unjust means. But you are a God who calls us to faithfulness, regardless of the resolve. I pray, Lord, that in this area we would transform our minds, that our minds would be conformed with what your word says, that we would take it seriously, and that we would have the courage to speak up on this area and let it first begin in the church. This is not something that will end through politics. This is not something that will end through the current approaches. This is something that will only end when your word is brought to bear in this world. Give us the courage to be your mouthpieces in bringing that word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.